few books are as fundamental to the Christian faith as the book of Exodus. Exodus not only teaches us about the redemption of God's people, Israel, but it also provides us with a paradigm for understanding God's future redemption of humanity. The people of Israel were physically enslaved in Egypt. Humanity today is spiritually enslaved to sin. We're all in need of redemption. God redeemed Israel, enabling them to cross over out of Egypt. Through the sacrifice of Jesus, we are all enabled to cross over into life from our sin. When we understand the book of Exodus, we understand God, his grace, and ultimately our redemption. So yes, uh, thank you, uh, my friend Matthew. Thank you, Pastor Weaver, for those uh, awesome words of encouragement for me this morning. Thank you for the prayers. Uh, like he was saying, if I've never met you before, my name is Jordan Hill. Uh, just real briefly, a little little about me is that I'm married uh, to Kelly. Uh, she has been my wife for 14 years. We have a little girl named Vivian who is four years old. And me and Kelly have been members, partners here at Vintage Church for going on about five years. And the way I try to like date myself to this church is that one of mine and Kelly's first times here in Vintage Church was Vintage's like 10-year anniversary party, if some of you were here for that. And it was like an awesome jumping point for me and Kelly. Uh, like that day, we got to hear the story of Vintage, like over the last decade, hear all the testimonies of how God had been working, moving in the life of Vintage. And now five years later, we have been a part of Vintage, and God is still working. God is still moving in the life of this church for the gospel in this city. And so real briefly, I don't want to waste too much time here, but I also don't want to miss this opportunity just to tell you, Vintage Church family, about how much I love you how much I care for you and how much you mean to my family. What a great and awesome church you are, and we're so glad to be a part of this. And kind of in that, along that same line is I want to say a, a quick thanks to our pastoral team, uh, to those guys. And if you had opportunity just to stand up here like I do today, uh, yeah, absolutely. Give those guys a hand. They do such a great job of leading, of shepherding us. And I want to thank them personally for this opportunity that I have this morning that they've so graciously given me to help you guys hopefully walk through Exodus chapter 23, verses 20 through 33. And that's where we're going to be this morning. So if you have your Bibles, open up. If you want to take some notes, I, I encourage you to do so. If you don't have a Bible, but you would like one, uh, like a hard copy to follow along, if you'll just raise your hand and our Connect team will come down and they can connect you with that. So just keep your hand raised if you, if you would like that. And so just a, uh, some context for before we start to read the verses. So we've been in the last several months in this section of the book of Exodus, uh, Exodus chapters 19 through 24. And this is a really tightly bound like literary unit within the book of Exodus. These chapters are structured and they're meant to be read and worked through and meditated on together. And this section of the book of Exodus is all about what I call the covenant conversation. And so God at Mount Sinai is having a conversation with the people of Israel through the mediator Moses. And God is formulating, he's talking about, he's laying out what this covenant relationship between himself and the nation of Israel is going to look like. And so as a part of that conversation so far, he's covered the topics of Israel's role in uh, the covenant. He's covered the law. And today, 
the, com- the topic of the conversation moves to the land. So the land is a part of this covenant conversation that God is having. And that's what we're going to talk about today. Today's verses are all about the land, this promised land that God has given uh, the nation of Israel. And so let's read, starting in verse 20, Exodus 23, verse 20. See, I am, uh, this is God speaking. See, I am sending an angel ahead of you to guard you along the way, to bring you to the place I have prepared. Pay attention to him and listen to what he says. Do not rebel against him. He will not forgive your rebellion since my name is in him. If you listen carefully to what he says and do all that I say, I will be an enemy to your enemies and will oppose those who oppose you. My angel will go ahead of you and bring you into the land of the Amorites, Hittites, Perizzites, Canaanites, Hivites, and Jebusites, and I will wipe them out. Do not bow down before their gods or worship them or follow their practices. You must demolish them and break their sacred stones to pieces. Pieces. Worship the, God, uh, worship the Lord your God and his blessings will be on your food and water. I will take away sickness from among you and none will miscarry or be barren in your land. I will give you a full lifespan. Verse 27, I will send my terror ahead of you and throw into confusion every nation you encounter. I will make all your enemies turn their backs and run. I will send the hornet ahead of you to drive the Hivites, Canaanites, and Hittites out of your way. But I will not drive them out in a single year because the land would become desolate and the wild animals too numerous for you. Little by little will I drive them out before you until you have increased enough to take possession of the land. Verse 31, I will establish your borders from the Red Sea to the Mediterranean Sea, from the desert to the Euphrates River. I will give into your hands the people who live in the land, and you will drive them out before you. Do not make a covenant with them or with their gods. Do not let them live in your land, or they will cause you to sin against me, because the worship of their gods will certainly be a snare to you. And so, uh, this is the word of the Lord for the people of the Lord. And so let's start here. In this covenant conversation that God is having with the nation of Israel, he first wants to discuss their journey to the land. And so the Israelites are no different than us. If we're getting ready to go on this, on this big journey, if we're getting ready to go on this trip, there's some things we want to know about this trip to help us prepare and to motivate us for the journey ahead. We at least want to know where we're going we want to know how we're going to get there, and we want to know what things we, should we expect along the way. Are there some obstacles or are there some challenges that we plan to face on the way? And, that, and that's going to help prepare us and get us ready for that journey. And so we're going to see in the first few verses here where God is going to work through those questions. And we're going to, we're going to see how he does that. But as we do, I want us to focus in on this truth. And this is kind of our first point for today is that God's personal presence God's personal presence is going to see us through the journey. God's personal presence is going to see us through the journey. And so this first question, where are they going? So yes, the Israelite people, God is going to move them into a specific geographical location, a place you could point to on the map. So the Israelites in this passage would have known it as the land of the Canaanites or the promised land. We know it today and refer to it as the Holy Land. So it's the same kind of area geographically where the modern-day nation-state of Israel and the territories of Palestine exist. However, God's first mention of the land in these verses is not the naming of this location, but rather a reminder of his faithful provision, his faithful gifting of the land to the people as a part of this covenant that he's making with them. Another way to say that God is giving them a gift, the gift of an inheritance in the land. And this is encapsulated by that phrase at the end of verse 20, the place that I have prepared. 
And now, if you're familiar with the Gospel of John, it's, it's hard not to hear the whisper of Jesus' words in that phrase, the place that I have prepared. And so in John 14, this is a part of a larger conversation that Jesus is having with his disciples, but it's, a, it's his own like covenant conversation he's having with them. And as a part of that conversation, he offers lots of promises, but he offers this one great promise here in John 14, verses 1 through 3. And this is what it says, Let your hearts not be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. And if it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself that where I am, you may be also. And so real quick, the lesson for us at the outset of the journey here, both for the Israelites and for us Christians, at the outset of our journey, that God has the destination in mind. An inheritance prepared for us in the land. And what a great promise to start with. What a great promise to focus on as we head out on this journey that we're on. And then the second question that God runs through is, how are they going to get there? And so in verse 20, we're, we're introduced to an angel. In verse 23, God refers to this angel as my angel. And now if you look at those, those first few verses here in 20 to 23, God tells us some things about this angel, that this angel bears God's name. It bears God's authority. The very words that this angel speaks, the people are to respond and to obey those words, just as if those words were coming from God himself. And so this picture that we get of this angel is that it's, this angel is God's personal presence, God's personal presence that's guarding, protecting, leading the people along their journey into the promised land, to their future home with God. And so now I think God still uses angels today. I don't think there's anything in Scripture that, that tells us differently. We see angels in the Old Testament. We see angels in the New Testament. And so I think God still uses angels in his dealings with humans today. But Christian, for us, God's personal presence that's leading, guarding, guiding, protecting us along our journey to our future home with Jesus is not an angel but it's God's own spirit. It's the Holy Spirit. It's the third part of the Trinity. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit, the Holy Spirit. Now, the New Testament authors have a lot to say about the Spirit, but one of the things they say, especially about the Spirit as it, as it pertains to the land, is that they say that the Holy Spirit is an inheritance, or it's a guarantee of our inheritance in our future home in Jesus' kingdom. Where do they get this phrase? Well, the folks like Apostle, the Apostle Paul, the Apostle Peter, they get this from Exodus 23. They have meditated on these verses, and they see a connection here. And so what they mean simply by this phrase is this is the same thing that the angel represented and did for the people of Israel, but the Holy Spirit does for us in this phrase, the down payment of our inheritance. It's a guarantee because God is going with us. Because God is going with us, it's a guarantee it ensures that we are going to make it to our destination. If it were up to us, if it were up to us to get there in our own will, and our own might, we wouldn't make it. But because God's presence goes with us, it guarantees that we're going to make it to our destination. And amen for that, right? Yeah? What a great promise. And then this third question that God answers is, what should the Israelites expect along the journey? And in a word, they should expect resistance. They should expect resistance. And so let's follow the flow of thought in these first few verses. So God says, hey, verse 28, behold, I'm going to give you an angel. I'm going to guide you and lead you into the land. And 
Israel, you're to pay attention to this angel. You're to do what he says. And if you do, I will be an enemy to your enemies and I will oppose those who oppose you. Well, why does God say that? Like, why give that promise right here? Well, he says that because God is foreshadowing. God wants them to know that along this journey that they're going to face resistance, that the enemy is going to attack them. And that's exactly what happens. If you keep reading ahead in Israel's story, God eventually moves them from Mount Sinai through the wilderness, and he's going to start marching them towards the promised land. And as they get ever closer to the land, we, we get these stories in Numbers chapter 21 through 24. So you get those four chapters, and you get four stories about four kings. You get Arad, who is a Canaanite king. You get Sihon and Og, which are two Amorite kings. And then you get Balak, who is a Moabite king. And you may recognize that name from the story of Balaam and the talking donkey. But these four kings, they see Israel marching towards the land. And just like Pharaoh before them, they don't see Israel as God's chosen people, the very people that God is going to use in time to bless their own nations. But just like Pharaoh, they see the nation of Israel as a threat, as something that needs to be marched out with the full force of their army and attacked along the way. They don't want them to get to their inheritance. And that's exactly what happens. But if you keep reading those stories, you're reminded of this great promise here in Exodus 23, is that God will be an enemy to our enemies and will oppose those who oppose us. And what that means is that God fights for them. That's what we read in those stories, is that God fought for Israel. God fought for his people. And God fought for Israel, and God is going to fight for us. And I know there's some of you that need to hear that this morning. I need to hear that. That we come here this morning and sometimes we act like we have it all together. But I guarantee, I know that you brought your burdens with you. I know that you brought your trials with you. That you're going through some things in your life, some challenges, big or small. And you're feeling like you're under attack right now. And whether that's mentally or spiritually, emotionally, or physically, you feel that Satan's attacking And it may seem like God is far off in your situation, but we need to be reminded of this great promise here in Exodus 23, is that God fought for Israel, and whatever you're going through, Christian, that God is going to fight for you. God is going to fight for you. His personal presence goes with us, and that means his personal presence is going to fight for us along the way. And again, what a great promise. So let's step back real quick, and let's just see how all this kind of fits together. And so New Testament authors, particularly the apostle Peter in his letter to 1 Peter. Peter's uh, one of my favorite characters in the Bible. I love the letter of 1 Peter. And this is what the letter of 1 Peter is all about, that Peter wants you to see, Christian. He wants you to see, church, that your story parallels or it mirrors Israel's own story in these texts. Well, what is Israel's story? Israel's story is one of Passover to promised land. Passover to promised land. And that's our story as well. We, Christians, have been redeemed. We have been bought and freed out of our slavery to sin and death by the great Passover lamb, Jesus, at the ultimate Passover feast 2,000 years ago. And now we're following him in faith. And Jesus is this new and greater Moses. He's leading us, the new Exodus people, on the journey towards our future home with him. And along the way, Jesus gives us his word to shape and mold us, his wisdom of his law. 
He gives us his personal presence to guide and guard us and lead us on the way. It's a guarantee that we're going to get to our destination. And then along the way, that personal presence ensures and fights for us, right? It, that personal presence fight, fights for us along the way in these challenges and these things that we're going through. Our story, Christian, is Passover to promised land, just like yours was in this. So let's shift gears here. And then in the next part of this text, which is kind of the bulk of this text, in verses uh, 23 through 33, the focus of this land conversation now shifts from the journey to the destination. All right? And so in these verses, God wants to make known his ultimate purposes and plans for Israel in the land. But as we begin to read and work through these, these verses, we run into some snags. We run into some problems. There's some things in this part of the text that don't sit so well with our sensibilities. For starters, is that God is promising that he's going to give Israel an inheritance in the land. But that means that he's going to have to dispossess all of these other people that are already living in the land. The people whose families live there, their homes and their communities are settled in the land. And God is going to drive them out. He's going to dispossess them of the land. And so that doesn't sit very well with us. And then you combine that fact with some of the language and the rhetoric that God uses in these verses, particularly the parts about him driving out, but more about the words that he uses about destroying or completely uh, blotting out. These phrases, right, depending on what translation, they don't sit well with us. And they make us question. They make us question God's goodness, God's morality. How could a good and loving God say and do the things that he's saying and doing in this text in Exodus 23? And so there's tension here. And there's, there's meant to be tension here. We're meant to wrestle with this text. We're meant to wrestle with this text and, and have this text teach us what God is trying to get across. And so my goal today for these verses is to not be able to answer all of your deep theological questions about this text. One, I am not qualified. I am the substitute teacher today, and I refer to uh, your teachers, okay? So, but, but I want to address them, okay? And so my goal today is to try to introduce you to a template and to introduce you to a framework that when we understand this template, we can apply that template to these texts, texts like Exodus 23, and we can begin to make sense of what God is saying and what God is doing. We can make sense of the theology, the why and for what purpose, okay? So we're going to work through this template. And this is the part today you just got to hang with me, okay? So some of this might be new to some of you, but we have notes. We can go back and watch this again online. So just hang with me, okay? And so as we work through this template, though, I want us to focus in on this second point for today, and it's that God wants to bring order to our lives so that we can experience his abundant life. That God wants to bring order to our lives so that we can experience his abundant life. And so let's talk about the template. So the template is what, I did not coin this, right? So some very smart people, more capable than me, have coined this the Eden template. And they, they call it the Eden template because it comes to us in Genesis chapters 1 and chapter 2. And this is the first time we see God dwelling in the land with his human partners. And so let's see how this template works and, and how it gets formulated. So let's look at Genesis chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. And so these are really famous verses in the Bible. Why? Because they're the first two, right? They're the first two of the Bible. If you've tried to read your Bible before, from beginning to end, this is where you start. This is the start of the biblical narrative. 
And this is what these verses have to say. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth, or the land, was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep waters, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. And so this picture that we start with in Genesis, the biblical story, is that we have the land, and it is covered by these chaotic waters. And if you put yourself for a moment, don't think like a modern Westerner. Try to put yourself in an ancient Near Eastern Israelite shoes. And so if you look at all the landscapes of the world out there, jungles, mountains, rivers, deserts, there's one place in particular where human relationships, human partnerships, human communities cannot flourish. They cannot live. They cannot flourish. And that's in the middle of the ocean or on a floodplain when waters cover the land. So now we get flooding here in New Orleans sometimes uh, as, you know, as a result of hurricanes and some of you crazy people stay and I do not. As soon as they make it more than a cat one, I'm out. All right. I live through uh, one. Uh, so I'm from North Mississippi. Tornadoes don't scare me, but hurricanes, uh, I, don't do, I don't do hurricanes. But some of you crazy people stay, you know, and the water floods the land. But most of us leave because it's not, the land is no longer capable of supporting human life and human communities. It's not until those floodwaters recede that we're able to come back and we're able to live and dwell in the land. And that's exactly what God wants us to see here, is that the land is covered by these chaotic waters. And so what God is doing in Genesis 1 is he's separating out those waters. He's driving them out of the land. He's separating them out. He's putting them in their proper place. He's setting boundaries on them. Why? So the dry ground can appear. And then you read through Genesis 1 and you get all these details about the land, about how God plants fruit trees on the land, right? And he plants plants for the humans to eat. And then he makes animals and the animals are on the land and they're going to serve human purposes. And then we're introduced to God's covenant partners, Adam and Eve, and he takes them specifically and he puts them in a garden within the land and God comes and dwells with them. And this is the template we should have uploaded in our mind, is that God is moving creation from a state of chaos to a state of order with the goal, with the goal of creating a space where this human and divine partnership can flourish for the benefit of all creation. That's the template. All right, so if you're still with me, hang in there, all right? So we're going to take this template, and now we're going to apply it to Exodus 23. And I think when we do, we can begin to make sense of what God is doing. And so the human partners in Genesis were Adam and Eve, but now it's the nation of Israel in Exodus 23. The land was the land of Eden, or more specifically the Garden of Eden in Genesis 1 and 2. The land is now the promised land. But the way the promised land is talked about in this text and other texts in the Old Testament is that it was a garden-like land. We're to see that connection. And so the question now becomes, well, what are the chaotic waters that need to be driven out so that this human and divine partnership can flourish? Well, it's the Canaanite people groups. The Canaanite people groups cover the land like a flood. And so God needs to drive them out. But what this tells us is that what God is doing is not motivated by race or genocide, or ethnic cleansing. What God is doing is not motivated by Israel's own righteousness. He's not doing this to the Canaanite people groups because Israel was a better people than they were. If anything, they were worse, all right? We were, we're gonna, that's what the Old Testament tells us. But God's motivation here is a new creation. It is a recreation event. 
He is remaking Eden in the land. One Old Testament scholar frames it. He says, it is Eden recapitulated. So God is reclaiming and he's preparing the land. Why? So it can once again be a place of life, justice, and goodness where this divine and human partnership between Israel and God can flourish for the benefit of all creation, including the Canaanite people groups. And so that gets us, that kind of lays out uh, the characters in this template. But what do we do with some of the language? What do we do with some of the language about God talking about destroying, driving out? And I think this is where illustration is helpful. And so I am a physical therapist by trade. And so that's what I do on a day in, day out basis. My wife is also in the medical field. And so this is what we talk about over the kitchen table, you know, patients and cases and, and things like that. And so we deal with the human body, and the human body is this beautifully ordered, uh, beautifully complex and ordered system. And when this system is ordered, it flourishes. But you introduce a virus, you introduce a pathogen, you introduce a disease, or you introduce something as terrible, God forbid, as cancer into that system, and you've introduced chaos into that system. That order no longer exists, and that system can't flourish. And so the whole point of medicine, right, physical therapy, pharmacology, all those things is we're trying to drive out those things. We're trying to scare them off so they don't come back. Why? So that our system can be ordered again. But sometimes those things refuse to go. They refuse to be driven out. They refuse to be scared off. And so the only option we have left is to surgically and painfully remove that thing for the benefit of the created order. And I think that's exactly what God is getting at with his language, is that he wants to drive them out. That's the most common phrase used in Genesis to Joshua to talk about what God is doing in the conquest. God wants to drive them out, but if the Canaanite people refuse to leave, he's going to be forced to take more drastic measures. And so, so let's move forward. So how do we make sense? So if that, that tells us how and what God is doing in Exodus 23, how do we make sense? What is it, how does that apply to us as Christians in a church community living in the here and now in the land of New Orleans? Well, we can again apply the template. Let's apply the template. And so now, Christians, we are God's covenant partners. We are God's covenant partners through faith in Jesus. Well, what about the land? Well, we have to work a little bit harder here. So if you think about Jesus' kingdom, what Jesus was doing as a part of his death and resurrection, was doing many things, but at least a part of what he was doing is that he was showing not only that he was king of Israel, but he's king of all the earth. Jesus sits enthroned now in heaven. He is Lord of heaven, all of heaven, and all of earth. All of the land is his. And so what that means is that Jesus' kingdom is no longer, it no longer consists of one small kingdom, one small country among many. But Jesus' kingdom is the whole earth. And so what that means is that wherever his people are, wherever there is a Christian, wherever there is a Christian community, that we are little places of his kingdom here in the land. We're little satellite communities. We're little frontier outposts of the new creation here in the old. And so in this template, not only Christians are we the covenant partners, but we represent the land because we're the place where this divine and human partnership lives. And so if you're still with me, we're following this flow of thought. We're following this template. So what is the chaos? 
What is the chaos that needs to be driven out of us, driven out of our churches, so this partnership between us and God can flourish? And what the Apostle Paul would say is the old self, the old self. This is what the Apostle Paul says in Ephesians 4, 22 through 24. He says, you, Christians, church community, you were taught with regard to your former way of life to put off the old self, which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires, to be made new in the attitude of your minds, to put, off the, or to put on the new self created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. In 2 Corinthians 5, verses 5 through 17, Paul again speaking. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, that person is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. We are new creation beings. We are God's new covenant partners. And so what is the old self that needs to be driven out? Again, Paul in Galatians 5, verses 19 through 21. The acts of the flesh, the old self are obvious. And then he lists a bunch of things. Now, this is not all encompassing. But if you look at that last line, he says, I warn you as I did before, that those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of heaven. And so I've been getting into uh, to gardening this year. Uh, I've done it before. It's not going so well, by the way. Um, just in case you're wondering, uh, squash vine borers tore me up this year. If you're the little bugs that get into your cucumber and squash vines, they just destroyed it. But Gardening. I've been getting into gardening this year, and I like to use uh, planter boxes, like these, I call them earth boxes, but they're like these big boxes, you know, they're really big. But for the last three or four years, my earth box has been kind of sitting over to the side of my house by my grill, and I've been throwing like tin foil from when I get through grilling over there, and like batteries in it, and like deck, and like roofing nails, and shingles, and like grass clippings, and so my There's chaos in my earth box. And so if I were to take a plant and I were to plant it in that earth box, that plant would not thrive. It would not produce fruit. And so I have to clean out my, so I cleaned out my earth box. I washed it out, planted it with dirt, fertilized it, put lime in it. And only now does my earth box have order. Only now can I plant something in there and that plant is going to thrive and it's going to produce fruit. And this is exactly what God wants to do with us. That's what he's teaching us in this text is that God wants to rid us of the chaos in our lives, the things that create a barrier between us and God. He wants to establish order in our lives so that we can be a people in a place where his life exists, where his life can be cultivated, and where his life can flourish and produce fruit for his kingdom. And this kind of gets us to our last sub-point here is that order in the land leads to life. And so if you go back to Exodus 23, particularly verses 25 and 26, you get these promises of God. And so if Israel adheres to what God is telling them to do, if they drive out the chaos, the Canaanite people groups from the land, if they maintain that order established through covenant faithfulness, then God will once again fill their land with the blessings of Eden that the Eden blessings will fill their land and it will flow out to the other nations. No longer will their land be marked by sin and sickness, but it will be a land marked by healing. No longer will that land be marked by barrenness, but that will, their land will be marked by fruitfulness and multiplication. No longer will their land be marked by death, but it will be marked by life. And no longer will their land be a place of want or scarcity or need, but it will be a place of abundant, abundant 
full life in the land. And so we're going to close and try to wrap this up with the words of Jesus. Because Jesus is tracking along with all of this. And he's tracking along with all of this because he is the one who all these scriptures point to. He's the one. And so we're going to read a passage here in John 10. John 10, verses 7 through 10. And as we get prepared to read this, the, the band can come on up because we're going to close it out here. But let's, let's, let's read these words here. This is Jesus speaking in John 10. This is part of the Good Shepherd speech, the Good Shepherd narrative. And this is what he says, I tell you the truth, I am the gate for the sheep. All who ever came before me were thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not listen to them. I am the gate. Whoever enters through me will be saved. He will come in and he will go out and he will find pasture land. The thief comes only to steal, to kill, and destroy. I have come that you may have life and have it to the full. Some other translations say in that last line, I have come that they may have life and they may have it in abundance. Abundant, full life in and through Jesus. And that if you don't know Jesus this morning, he's offering you that. And if you do know Jesus, he's still offering you that. That Jesus is both the way to and the source of new creation life. What it means to truly be a human we find that in Jesus. It's sourced in us through Jesus. And so in this text, Jesus wants to remind us that all other things in this world, people, things that claim authority in our life, the things of the old self, the idols of the Canaanites, those things would demand our worship. They would demand our allegiance. They falsely say that they're going to give us life, that if we just entrust ourselves to them. But what Jesus says is those things are actually robbers in the land, is that they're thieves, is that what life God has given you, they take it and they waste it. And so we're called to drive it out. The idols of the Canaanites, the things of the old self, if they're given a place in our lives, if they're given a place to settle in our lives, they become a source of sin and a snare in our lives along the journey. And in Jesus, there's a better way. In Jesus, we find order, and that order leads to life. In Jesus, we find the only place where we can experience new creation life in the land and where we can have that life in abundance. And this is what he offers. And I think this is what this text has to teach us this morning. And so let's close and let's just kind of go back to those two truths that I, that I mentioned throughout. Is that God's personal presence is going to see us through the journey. That God has a destination in mind for us. We're guaranteed to reach it because the Holy Spirit goes with us. But along the way, we're going to run into some troubles. We're going to run into some battles. But because God's personal presence is with us, that he's going to fight for us in those moments. And so how can you trust that this morning with whatever you're going through? And I know you need to hear that. And I need to hear it too. And then along the journey to our future home with Jesus, God wants to bring order to our lives. 
He wants to drive out those things that are creating a barrier for cultivating new creation life in us. Just like he did with the Israelites in Exodus 23. And so, we're called to drive those things out. We're going to try and we're called to give that space up for Jesus because it's his. We are his. His life. And so, just called to trust in these promises this week. Jesus is the way to and the source of new creation life. So let's pray. Father, we just thank you for the day. We just thank you for this passage here in Exodus 23. Father, we thank you that you have prepared a place for us, a place that we can one day call home with you, a place where we can live and dwell with you. But we have a journey ahead, and, and Father, we just pray that as we walk along this journey, that you will just keep your promises that you've laid out here, that you will go with us, that you will go before us, you will go behind us, that your personal presence will guide us along the way, and then whenever the enemy attacks, that you will keep your promise to fight for us. So Father, we just pray for trust and faith along the journey. Pray that you would just take our lives, that you would clean out all the mess in it. That you would create space in us where you can fill us with your life and where that life can overflow for the benefit of others. May we be a people that trust you and follow you this week. In Jesus' name we pray. Thank you for joining the Vintage Church NOLA podcast. If you're enjoying this content, please subscribe wherever you listen to your podcasts. We'll see you next week.